This is the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, and I'm your host, Steve McCready. Join me for conversations with fellow sensitive rebels as we discuss the challenges of making a difference in a world that touches us deeply. If you're ready to turn your sensitivity into a secret weapon, then you're in the right place. Let's do this. Hey, Sensitive Rebel, it's Steve. I hope you're doing well. My guest today on the show is David Martin, and David is the author of Free the Genius, How the Very Best Grow Their Meaning, Mission, and Contribution. He has been a consultant and business coach for over 25 years, and he's got a whole lot of great stuff to share with us today. You're going to learn a lot that is going to be useful even if you are not an entrepreneur or an executive. We're talking about humans, human stuff, and how we deal with the emotional challenges of life. And so in addition to that, we got into a whole bunch of different topics. We were talking about movies, about philosophy, a little spirituality, and a whole lot more. So you're not only going to learn, but you're also going to laugh. And here's my conversation with David Martin. So my guest today on the Sensitive Rebel podcast is David Martin. David, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Good to see you and good to actually see your face instead of just your words. David and I have known each other for, for a few years now through online means, thanks to Seth Godin and his workshops, but have rarely had the opportunity to actually connect in any kind of visual manner. So it's good to actually see you as well as talk to you. It's interesting to know somebody only through the written word and then to see your face. Wow. Who is this guy? Yeah. And to hear a tone and everything. Yeah. It's great to be yeah. seen live. So I'm going to start with the place that I always like to start, which is the question for you of what are you rebelling against? I'm rebelling against people fighting for their limitations. That's the one thing that just drives me nuts. It happened to me just, it's fresh on my mind. It happened just this week. A friend had been given a great opportunity that I actually had worked hard to set up for him. And within a half a second, the first words out of his mouth were, no, that won't work. Here's why. And he had at least four reasons without even catching a breath as to why he wasn't capable or couldn't make it work. And I lost it, but I kept my mouth shut. But inside, I was definitely uh, heating up. And ultimately, it was his fear. But it was hard for me to watch because I just saw so much in him that he was fighting. And yeah, that's what I rebel against. Why is this such a trigger for you? Why why would you say it's a trigger for me? Why is it a trigger for me? First, don't we all despise in others what we most despise in ourselves? I think I see a bit of that in myself. I have a history of, of having done that too many times. I could just see what he was capable of. My heart was breaking. He was at this precipice for an opportunity to take an important leap that that will or could make a difference for him in a positive way, I believe. And I think, in fact, in his heart of hearts, he believes it too. But his first move was to bat it down and say why he couldn't. So I rebelled. I mean, I think you're right that it is, especially for those of us who are focused on the work of potential and possibility and who I think Mm -hmm. are very attuned to that in people, it is especially hard to see someone who is not accessing theirs and actively almost blocking it. Yeah. And in in fact, in this instance, I think he, that's one of the things he got good at. He'd had a lot of disappointments before. And so it, I think maybe sometimes it's easier to talk ourselves out of things or talk ourselves down rather than have to deal with the disappoint of hoping and not getting it. And again, is that true just for him or is that common for all of us? It's a great survival uh, tactic for anybody. Safety, or at least the perception of safety is a pretty powerful force, it turns out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think 
we all make our own moves to feel safe in that way. Gosh, I have mine. The stories that I tell myself or in my work, sometimes I start to get comfortable and I'll not, I'll tell myself, well, I need to stop doing this. And, and when I really dig down beneath it, it's just, I have to stick my neck out to go to the next level or something like that. And so it's easier to just play it safe. So yeah, safety is, we're wired to be afraid, right? That keeps us safe in some right. ways. It, yeah, in theory, it keeps us safe and alive. In <laughs> practice, it also has these limitations, of course, and that's one of the great, of there's course. so many ironies in, in humans and human experience. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about, for you, you can re regress into that, that form of focusing on the safety piece. When that happens, what are the things that you found help you to break out of that? How do you push yourself into more of the stretch in the growth zone? I practiced a lot to notice what's sending me there. And then also just to recognize there are things that I do that are dead giveaways that I am in that place or that I'm headed to that place. I can hear the stories in my head. I can hear the excuses playing in my head like a tape. That to me is an indicator. Oh, there you go again. Sometimes when I hear, I'll call it a whine in my voice when I'm like almost pleading as I'm speaking, that's another indicator. And what I find is it, I've had to get really good at noticing what are those giveaways for me? I call them tells. What are those giveaways that tell me I'm there? And now having done it so much, as soon as I recognize that giveaway or that tell, I can almost the awareness itself brings me back to, oh, there you go. But then if not, I can talk to myself. There's ways I can self-coach. And sometimes I'll even move. I'll get myself into a different physical state because it's hard to maintain the downward spiral when your body is telling you, no, I feel powerful or I'm moving or I get myself out of it. So that, that awareness, I mean, I'm hearing just how much you have really cultivated this mm -hmm. active awareness of yourself. You've learned to recognize the different cues and symbols and some of the stories yeah. that show up in these situations. How have you done that? It was really out of necessity. I'm married twice. And after I'd been dating the woman who is now my wife, Brenda, we'd been together for maybe six months and I felt pretty close to her. So I opened up and shared with her some of what was going on for me. And she listened very intently and she says, wow, you got a lot going on in there. I think you might be depressed. Have you ever thought about seeing a therapist? And of course, I completely backpedaled. Oh, no, I'm fine. Everything's good. Everything's good. And one of the reasons I was freaking out so much is because what she didn't know is that about three years before, when I was married to another woman, <laughs> I opened up and told her what was going on for me. And she listened really intently. And when I was done, she said, wow, you got a lot going on in there. I think you might be depressed. <laughs> Have you ever thought about seeing a, a therapist or something? That was really a wake-up call for me. And yet I didn't know what to do about it. So I had already been meditating in many different things, but I recognized that there was a pattern, a, a number of patterns that I had that I just, it was like they had me. It was like I didn't have the patterns. They had me and I didn't know what to do about it. Fast forward a number of years and I've studied meditation. I read intensely. I read many of the books that are popular and some that nobody has ever heard of to try to get things right. And what I was finding was I conceptually had a lot of great ideas, but I couldn't do anything with it. And so actually what happened was I was on a trek in Nepal with one of my friends. And after three days on in that quiet up in the mountains, things got really clear and I started to have some insights and things started to piece together for me. And I recognized that one of the critical things was if you want to catch this, you have to know what's going on when you're downward spiraling. Otherwise you'll just stay there forever. And that's so that's when I started to just 
look in the mirror a lot. To look inward and to check in with yourself so you could bring that awareness more actively and consciously there. Yeah, exactly. And that now I, I teach it to my clients because I found that I am not alone in that that inner chatter. I believe we all have some version of it. I've met very few people who don't. It just well, looks different in each of us. just lying to you, man. <laughs> that's what I think. <laughs> there's the people. There's the people who have it, and the people who are lying. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, that's, that's probably safe categorization. Yeah, I'd say you're right. Or in <laughs> okay, denial, so, you know. Or, or in denial. That, yeah, yeah, that's probably a nicer way to put it, and probably more accurate, actually. To be fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, with your clients and the people you're working with, how do you teach them this awareness? What are the things that you do there? I'm not a brain scientist, but I've studied enough brain science to know what happens to our brain under stress, at least at a very cursory level. And so I try to help them see that, first of all, because the first thing that happens is I find that when people beat themselves up in some way, they think that they're the only person in the world who does that, and they're not really wanting anybody else to know that. And so how can I help you if you don't even want me to know that you got this thing? I've collected a lot of stories and then sometimes it's great just to do it with a group of people because everybody starts raising their hand like, oh yeah, me too. At the beginning of the program, we'll do some anonymous polling. Just click here if you if this happens to you and suddenly and it's a room full of super high performers and suddenly 100% of the room is saying me, I have this. And all of a sudden now I realize, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. I call it normalizing things. Then I, I develop something called a resilience map where I can show them sort of step-by-step step. when something you don't expect, you, bad news or an experience that scares us or something like that shows up, you probably have a pattern of things that are going to happen to you that are predictable. And when people start to see that again, there's another, you can hear the sigh in the room. Oh my gosh. And that I'm not the only one with that either. That's amazing. Honestly, that's what came to me that night in Nepal when I was falling asleep on the side of a mountain at about 15,000 feet. Suddenly, all the stuff that I'd studied, you have to get far enough away to have it become clear. The connection started to get made and that's where it happened. And now I just, having shared it with thousands of people, they've helped me get really good at explaining it. The thing I'm hearing though, being on the side of this mountain in Nepal, you finally had, it sounds like enough quiet and enough of a uh, stopping of the input so that your brain was actually able to focus on processing everything and then to give you some output. What you said, that's pretty profound. Yes, I think that's exactly what happened. I just thought of it as quiet, but yeah. I'm saying that based on my understanding from history of how many great thinkers have made a daily walk, a part of their routine, and have talked about the experience of going out and doing that or actively doing it when they're wrestling with a problem and giving themselves that space and I think it's a huge issue in our world today where we've got just such a noisy world. There's just input constantly and we have to actively turn it off rather than go seek it out. And so if we don't do things like cultivate some quiet, our brain never gets a chance to process. Yeah, yeah. Right? I think that was, the noise is the other part of it that when the noise went away, because I have a very active mind. And so not only was there external noise, I was generating a lot of noise myself. And just one added detail that when I was in Nepal, Brenda and I were separated and that was a decision I had made unilaterally. We had had so much trouble. I just couldn't, it was literally, I couldn't take it anymore. It was probably a, a cowardly move to make, but it was also a self-preservation move or maybe for the relationship. I was also there processing a whole bunch of shame and guilt and failure. And I was divorced once. Oh my God, is it going to happen again? So it, it felt like there was a lot of noise and being around the halfway around the world up in the sky was just, a, it was a completely different place. And, and I, so not only was the external input gone, but the internal input was greatly quieted. So what are the ways in which you cultivate or create space for quiet in your life today? 
It's funny how it changes over time, but I have some practices now. The first one is the first thing in the morning, I wake up our dog and I don't want to wake up anybody else in the house. So it's a very quiet time, but it is just a five minute love fest of joy because this dog is, you wake her up and she's just happy to be alive and happy to see you. It's quiet, but it's also just joyful. I find that if you're feeling joyful or grateful, it's hard for fear to coexist in that space. That's one thing I do. But then more recently, in the last three months, I've actually, I at the, at the beginning of the year, I decided just, I don't know why, I just decided I'm going to start journaling every morning again, which I haven't done for years. So I would set a timer on my watch and after 10 minutes, wherever I was, I would just stop. And it wasn't like a dear diary experience. It was sort of introspection of where my mind was going and help me see that. And then I decided to add to that meditation in the morning. I'd stop meditating in the morning because every time I tried, the dog would be like all over me because she was a puppy at the time. But I realized she's old enough now that I can meditate in the morning. So then I added a meditation before journaling. And then about a month ago, I added yoga back, which is something I'd also been doing for a long time. But again, because the dog had stopped. So now it's about a 45 minute practice of a little bit of movement some meditation and then a 10 minute writing practice. And man, on the days that for some reason that got interrupted, I can tell that I didn't have it. At other times in my life, I've done some things with this movement. I, I developed something called a resilience practice once upon a time. It's 12 steps that takes about seven minutes. And it's really just moving your body in different ways and working with your breath that again, it just quiets you. So those are a couple of things that I find have really helped me. I think you touch on a number of different things, but when you combine them together, I could say it would be especially powerful. And again, it sounds like your attunement to yourself is good enough that it's really easy for you to tell and notice when it's not there, when it is. And I think that helps to reinforce it because you get that feedback loop that's telling you, man, I, oh yeah, I can't skip this. I need to be doing this. I walked through life for many years thinking that I was a good person, a good friend or whatever. And I would say that 98% of the time I was. But then when I would lose it, if I would feel threatened in some way or get angry or feel mistreated or whatever, I think I made up for all the 98% with the 2% of a mess that I could create. First, I didn't take responsibility for it. And then finally, when I took responsibility for it, I didn't know what to do with it. I couldn't stop it. So that's why I work so hard because I'd like to be a good person in the world and not negate that with, my, with the 2%. Whatever it is, maybe it's 90-10, but still, it's amazing how you can blow something up pretty quickly. A lot of good work can be blown up pretty quickly if you don't take responsibility, if I didn't take responsibility for that. What I'm hearing, if I can dig into that a little bit more, Please. is most of the time going along, okay, things are good. And then there would be these situations that would trigger you and set you off. And you would have what, based on what you're telling me, sounds like a disproportionate response. And that makes me think, so what else is there? What else was coming out in those moments besides just the actual trigger? I know for me, one of the things that really sets me off is when I feel either powerless or disrespected, which is, by the way, both of those are completely self-assessed. It's not necessarily true, but when I feel it or when I think it's happening, which I think is more of a feeling than anything, but there's a possibility. This is just a story I tell about myself, but I'm the youngest of four kids. And so sometimes it felt like I had five parents growing up. There was always somebody bigger, faster, smarter, more articulate, who even if I thought I had the best idea, I usually didn't get it. And so I would feel powerless. So I would throw a tantrum or I would whine or I would pout or I would do whatever. 
And even though it wasn't pretty, at that point, you had to deal with me. I got some power. If I'm throwing a tantrum on the floor, mom and dad have to deal with me now. I grew up and became more sophisticated with my expression of it. But that's why I said before, one of my one of my tells to tell me I'm not at my best is when I hear myself whining. It happened oh, probably a year and a half ago. I was taking a walk with Brenda. We were talking about something. She's really quick with her thinking. And uh, she got in front of me on in some disagreement we were having, and it felt really unfair and I heard the whine in my voice and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm doing it. So at least I caught myself and I said, I'm sorry, I don't think I'm at a place to continue this. This is all me, but can we pause and do this later? Because I was just going to mess things up. But at least I was able to stop at that time. What I'm hearing is looking at the, what you're talking about with these childhood situations is you in a situation where, yeah, you weren't really getting power or attention or what you wanted. And you did what for somebody of that age in that developmental space is a totally normal response, right? It's like we use whatever tools happen to be available to us. And if we're young, we don't have much of a toolbox yet. Exactly. And it sounds like that's what that was. I'm curious, though, we're in the topic of family and childhood. What sorts of messages do you remember getting either explicitly or implicitly about things like feelings, especially I'll say like negative feelings, sadness, fear, anger in your home growing up? Those were not encouraged. In fact, they were, I would say, discouraged, not just with words, but it was almost like sometimes you got ignored for it. It got you more of what you didn't want versus what you did want. So both with words, my parents were not abusive in any way, but it was just, it was a clear message. We were Midwestern farmers. And so you didn't show much, like you didn't strut, you didn't boast, you didn't brag. If something good happened for you, you just took it in stride and you don't rub it in anybody else's face and don't make a big deal about it. But we also cut off the other end, which was the really negative stuff just got not really talked about. And then sometimes it would show up in passive aggressive ways as a result. But yeah, no, definitely the messages were don't do that. In fact, until I did more of my own work, I remember as my nephew was growing up, he was 18 years younger than I was. And when he was growing up, I look back and I realize I passed on the same messaging to him when he was young and I hadn't really figured it out yet. I passed on that family tradition, which my parents were just passing on what had been passed on to them too. Of course, yeah. super, super normal, right? That's, that was what was thought was the way to do it and the right way to be. And there's aspects of that or situations where that would actually be an adaptive approach too. Just has this long-term problem. And you hit on it, I think, with the passive aggressive behaviors or with some of the other things that these feelings are there, whether or not we acknowledge them. And when we're not supported in acknowledging them, that creates a real challenge for us. So as you're growing up in this environment, I'm curious about your own internal experience of your feelings in that environment and how you dealt with that as you went through childhood and then off into to college and, and adulthood. I think I got really good at being passive aggressive. I had no name for it at the time, but I would withhold my feelings and then I would make wisecracks. Yeah, well into college. I remember a particular incident in college where somebody really called me on it. And I was like, no, I'm just having fun. I would just, I would be the happy-go-lucky guy until I wasn't. And then I would blow up for many years. But I actually think if I can draw a connection, you can tell me if this is appropriate. I remember my first wife was a clinical psychology student and she read a book called The Drama of the Gifted Child. And there's some quote in that that's something like, if you suppress your emotions long enough or enough, the outcome is depression or something like that's a paraphrase. And I think that I think I had done such a good job of suppressing my emotions for so long that that when I got told twice in a couple year period, three year period that maybe you're depressed, I actually think I probably was. 
And it was the outcome of just not letting myself feel for a long time. Absolutely. I've seen it with many clients. And those feelings go somewhere. The analogy I used to make sometimes is you can stuff the feelings under the rug forever, but at a certain point, you can't walk across the room without falling on your face, right? Because you just trip over them and that's what happens. And they come out with men, they often come out with anger because that's one of the societal feelings we're allowed to express. And so even though it ends up in these destructive, awful things, that was the closest thing to acceptable. But certainly we can't be depressed or scared. It's like, that's weak. Yeah. I remember I studied, one of my first teachers in the work that I do was a man from South America, from Chile. And so I worked with a lot of his associates and, and we would tease each other back and forth because they, they would call me a gringo with usually an adjective in front of it that I won't repeat on your podcast. But anyway, they would say, you gringo, I can't believe that you're so stiff or don't you ever have any feelings or you always want everything to be a recipe. And I would tease them and say, does everything have to be a drama? come on, it's just breakfast. It doesn't have to be a drama. And we would go back and forth with that. But I think what my teacher would say is, look, we have turned depression into an enemy when hundreds of years ago, they looked at, they didn't call it depression. They called it melancholy. And it was just an emotion that you had that was often a teaching emotion. You didn't linger there forever. But he believed that because we spent so much time making it bad and fighting it, that it actually lingers. I'd be interested in what you think about that. I would agree with it completely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that pretty much covers it. I think we unfortunately have decided that some feelings are good, some feelings are bad and all of that. And I think because we conflate good and bad and comfortable and uncomfortable. And no, right? Feelings are messages from our brain or our body to us. They are not always the most clear or concise messengers around, Yeah, but they are trying to deliver a message and they will keep working on it until we get it by making the message more and more intense. And at some point we have to listen and take it in. And that was where for you, you look at all this work you've done on cultivating this awareness for yourself and becoming more aware and being able to listen It sounds like that has really made for a significant switch for you in your relationship with your feelings and how you navigate through the world. Yeah. And if I could just draw a connection, something's popping in my brain as as you were talking. It's just, did you call it information, feelings or information? I think you said messages, Messages, but information. Sure. I mean, I think that's... So yeah. So messages, information, I think maybe I jumped to that. I work with a lot of business people and some of them are really analytical. That's their forte. They can look at a spreadsheet or a list of numbers or data of some sort and very quickly draw the lines of, oh, that means this, here are the trends. These are the things we need to watch out for. And so they've gotten really good at interpreting that information. I'm just thinking, what would? that's what I'm trying to get good at is if feelings are information, how can I interpret those? Starting with my for myself, because I need to take responsibility for myself, but then in my line of work, if I can help other people start to interpret that information just as well as they do the numbers on the page or the numbers in the spreadsheet, that opens things up. But it's you can see the numbers. You can't see the feelings. It's harder. It's less tangible. It's a little less tangible and a little less concrete. It's a little bit more amorphous. And I think that's one of the things that makes it tricky, although I also think it's more our society's bad relationship with the feelings, because there's plenty of other things that are amorphous and vague that we are able to describe and talk about. And I don't think that's inherently problematic. But for you, speaking of business and for you, your kind of awareness and attunement, 
as you've developed that in yourself, has that changed your insights into or awareness as it relates to others and being able to see them and what's going on for them? Yes. I'm able to be much more compassionate. My fuse got lit a little bit with the friend I talked about at the beginning when he was fighting for his limitations. But actually, the way I ended the conversation was, hey, I love you. And I'm just fighting for what I see as possible in you. And I'm sorry if that got intense, but I would have never been able to do that before because I was just, I was able to have compassion. And then I continued to think about it over the course of the week. And I just realized, all right, he probably hasn't had the opportunity to do this before because he's had so many disappointments in in this particular area. So what I've been able to do is now that I see it in myself, I'm able to see it in others. And if not immediately, like with him, I wasn't able to be there immediately, but in time I can go to a place of compassion, which never used to be available to me. And how does that particular tool change your ability to help or support others as it relates to overcoming limitations? I think that if I'm coming at you fighting whatever you're feeling, your only response is to dig deeper in the direction that you were already going. So uh, there is no opening for you if I'm making you wrong for whatever you're feeling. So I, I just find that if I can go to a place of neutral or compassion, then it might feel safe enough for them. I love that saying, behold the turtle for he, he makes progress only when he sticks his neck out. I forget who said that, but it's one of my favorites. So he can, do you know who said it? I don't, I wish I did, but I, I'm laughing because my father used to have a poster of that had a drawing of a turtle with that saying, and I loved it as a kid that spent summers with him and he had it in my room. And that was one of my favorite things. I haven't heard that saying in years, but I love it. It, it is great. Um, but no, I think then if they feel safe enough, I believe that safety is one of the things that we all could use more of feeling safe. And once the safety starts to exist, Maybe we will stick out our neck and try something that we've wanted, that we believed could be possible in our quiet moments, but we would never, ever let anyone else see or tell them about. Oh, absolutely. The safety piece is huge. And we know this from, I believe it was Google who did a bunch of research around this, trying to find out why some work teams are more effective than others. And the thing they eventually found is, oh, it's psychological safety that makes the difference. If you have that, you're going to have a pretty effective team. And that's what you're talking about is with the folks you're working with, creating a safe space for them. And that's what compassion does because it says, it's okay that you're here. I'm not going to let you hang out here. I'm going to try and encourage you to go somewhere else. But the fact that you're here doesn't mean anything other than you're a human being. Yeah. I say a lot, welcome to the human race to people. One of the things that I try to do, like when I lead a program, I will often start with a story about myself, not let me tell you how awesome I am. It's let me tell you how idiotic, I wouldn't say idiotic, but let me tell you how I screwed it up royally. There's the, when I was young, I, just before my grandpa died, I, I dissed him like a 12 year old boy would do. And, and then he died oh and gosh. I never got to say, I'm sorry. You know, I, I, I don't tell that story to, to elicit sympathy, but rather to say, let me like the, okay, the guy who's about to teach you this screwed it up many times. And I talked to them about what happened to me when I was in Nepal and stuff like that. So that, because I feel like that's a great way to make it feel more safe is I'm not putting myself up here and you're down here. Cause I think that's another thing that eliminates safety is if we create a hierarchy and I'm yes. at the high end of it, it's to say, I'm in the same game with you. And I find that in fact, I can watch people lean in, like literally physically lean in. And uh, then we can go really fast when it's time to share information that could be helpful to them. For sure. This seems like a space where it would be very easy to 
I'll say overshoot instead of having yourself be one up to not just go to a point where you're level, but actually put yourself one down if you get too focused on your limitations and how you're talking about or thinking about yourself. Is that something that you've experienced or or see happen in your work? I don't know what you're talking about. Yes, it's happened to me many times. Are you living in my head, Steve? I I don't read minds. It just seems like it sometimes. Yeah. My Chilean teacher, his name is Julio, used to say, I have bad news for you. You're unique, but you are not original. You're telling me I'm not original? But yeah, I definitely, in fact, there were times where it would feel uncomfortable. Like sometimes when I would, I would get better grades than somebody or I would do better in some event or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I would get uncomfortable with their discomfort of not, oh, you're better at this than I am. And so I would put myself down to the point where I was actually below them. And it was a, it was actually a tactic to, I think, to try to affiliate with people better because it was like, okay, if you think I'm better than you, you don't like me and you're not going to be my friend. I don't like that outcome. So what do I have to do to get you to like me? How about if I put myself below you? I used to really overdo the self-deprecating humor. I didn't realize it was unconscious, but I was trying to put people at ease so they'd like me. Mm-hmm. Sure. And that's, I think, often what is driving it is it's a good intent, but the impact is pretty significant because it ends up affecting the message we're telling ourselves and the stories we're telling ourselves about ourselves and they're they're not good or helpful ones. I was saying it so that they would hear it, mm-hmm. but I heard it too. <laughs> so how have you learned to become more more accepting of and more able to I'll say embrace your strengths, your successes, your wins in a way that feels balanced, not putting yourself one up like how great I am, which is anyone who knows you knows that's like the last thing anyone would ever think of of you, but in a way that's, yes, I can do these things. Like a quiet confidence is the phrase that I always think of when I'm thinking of people who present that way. But how have you learned to to put yourself more in that space with these things? Um, and maybe this is a mental trick that I do, but I... I tell myself that I am a vessel, that I am in the Buddhist or Hindu approach. They talk about doership. You are not the doer. You are entitled to the, your actions, but the, not the fruits of your actions. And so I just remind myself that like, if anything good comes through me, I accept it and I'm going to celebrate it, but I don't want to confuse myself as what happened with it was me. It was like, I was fortunate enough to be the one that I worked hard. I practiced, I built the skill, I did whatever. So that in that moment I could show up that way. But what showed up was I was the active vehicle, the willing vehicle, but not, I wasn't the whole player in the act, if that makes any sense. And in fact, I'm having trouble articulating because it's almost more of a physical feeling than a thought. But that's, I think that's how I'd say it. It's I am the vessel. So it sounds like it's almost like you're being driven by, in a sense, this almost outside force is what I think I'm hearing you say and how you describe it. It's like this thing that's just pushing through there. Yeah. Or I would call it maybe an inside force, like an outside inside force. Yeah, exactly. I have a belief that there is something bigger than the this flesh and bone time and space that we live in that's powering the grid or whatever you want to call it that I like that I'm doing my best to to build a relationship with how does that inform or affect your work and how you do it I I have a saying I read a book a long time ago that uh, the author said you should have a mantra to describe the work that you want to do and if it rhymes even better and I thought, huh, I wonder what my mantra would be. And then it just came to me really quickly. And it, it sounds, even as I say it, it sounds a little bit hooky, but it's what I live by. It's people come, people go. And when they leave their light, they know. 
And so I really see that my job is to help people cultivate their that light in themselves. And so th that's just how I approach all of my clients is that there is something in you that's awesome. Probably you have not recognized all of it and you've done things out of fear or whatever to cover it up. So my office, we call it the genius farm. I'm yes, farm and I, I love this name. Good, I'm glad yeah, we got to the yeah, genius farm. A, so I'm the, we call it the genius farm. My wife named it, Brenda named it. And, and then the tagline is, we cultivate the light of, that's where we cultivate the light of your genius. And in fact, my book, Free the Genius. Genius, not like what your IQ is, but genius as that part of us, that, that light in all of us, an older meaning of the word genius. But also I'm the son of a farmer who's the son of a farmer who's the son of a farmer, which my, means my, my dad, grandpa, and great-grandfather were all farmers. And so the genius farm, I was the one who left the farm, but now I brought it back. Thanks to Brenda, we have the genius farm. One, I love it because it just, it sounds cool. It's like, it totally invokes curiosity. There's a certain tension in that thing. It's like genius farm. Wait, wait these three things don't go together. What do you mean? There's that piece. And then, yeah, I really like it because the idea of a farm is being a place where things can grow and all of that. So it really ties in really well. And, and it also, again, relates to your history. I think it's so cool because it feels like it absolutely fits you. Your history is a really clear, powerful you know, message in it. And so it, it's just cool. It's one of those little things. I'm like, yeah, that's some good branding right there. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Well, I'll pass on the compliment to Brenda. She gets the credit. But it reminds me of, there's a book by James Hillman. And I, gosh, I've just read so many books. I can't remember the titles of some of them, but I remember James Hillman wrote it. And he talked about that. I don't think it's even his original idea that the oak tree lives in the acorn. The whole oak tree exists in that acorn. And that's the whole notion of genius. It's in you let's just cultivate it. Let's bring it more to life. And so that's back to your original question. How do I approach my clients? Was I think it was, or how do, how do I take this into my work? I, I don't talk about that with my clients, but I would say that I would hope that their experience, I just got a note from a, a brand new client. Usually clients interview me to see if they want to work with me. I deliver one-on-one -on -one coaching. I will consult to help them I work with the people who see around corners. Usually they're the first one to see a, a new thing as possible to make a contribution. And they're usually the only ones who believe it. And they ask me to help them bring it to the organization. And then I do training. But I usually, if it's one-on-one -on -one coaching, they'll interview me to see if they want to work with me or not. But in this situation, because of circumstances, we had never met. And a third party had said, oh, I think that you would want to work with David Martin. And so our first conversation was just getting to know each other. And I even said to him, hey, you have right of refusal here. If this doesn't work, I, we shouldn't do this. And he wrote me a thank you note. And he said, I just really felt heard in that. What I was doing was I was fascinated with, he had some really interesting struggles that he was dealing with in work and in life. And there were parallels between them. And I was fascinated and I was just reflecting back, gosh, I see this in the reply that I sent to him today, as I said, I can already see that part of my work is you, you are not fully aware of how strong you are. And part of my job will be to help you see that. And that's the thing for you is you're being able to see people's light, what they're capable of. And I think that's a thing not everyone necessarily sees. And that may be a, you know, where your special gift is. And that totally makes sense then why this whole limitation piece and people fighting for their limitations would be triggering. Yeah. I, I, I argued for my own limitations for so long. It wasn't my light that I was fighting for. It was what I couldn't do. And this is just philosophy. But I, my interpretation, I was raised, I'm not practicing now, but I, I was raised in a Christian household. 
we were Presbyterians. And so the message that I heard, there's not a slam on any religion. The message that I heard was, I was born a sinner, hence inadequate, and the best I could do was make my way up to zero. If I worked really hard, I was born in the hole and I could make my way up to zero. And then I studied more and I was introduced to Eastern philosophy, where they said, you are born perfect, if you will, and you have, you've lost, this is my, again, my interpretation of it, but your job is to recognize your perfection. Doesn't mean just because you were born perfect that you don't do stupid things or you don't make mistakes or whatever, but there's something that's blocking your view, if you will. And when I said, okay, you know what? I'm just going to carry a different interpretation. I'm this, as long as I carry the, I suck and the best I can do is get up to zero, everything's going to be half empty for me. I'm in a deficit always. And over a few years, it took me a while to change my inner story, but now it's okay. I and all of us are perfect. And how can we recognize that? And I personally found more freedom in that. This is just, this is just my, my interpretation because I think that there are all religions have some people interpret it that you suck and probably all religions have it that you are light. So I just, that was the way I took it. There's so many places where we can get a similar message from multiple spots, but the message has different flavors, different emphasis, different whatever. And I think sometimes it's about us finding who is putting the message out there in the way that we can hear, or if I was going to be more artful about it, who's singing the song that most connects with our heart. And I think that's the thing is it's different for different people. So one of my favorite sayings, and this comes from the guy who founded the San Francisco Zen Center, whose name is escaping me at the moment, but it's, you're perfect just as you are. You could use a little improvement. I love that. (laughs) That's beautiful. Yeah. And so true. The first time I heard it, I was a lot younger and a lot less self-aware. And my first thought was, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That makes no sense. Now, of course, it's, oh my gosh, that's so powerful. It's so powerful. It's, yeah, it's okay. You're fine. And keep going. You can do more. You can do better. And so it feels so freeing, I think, to own that because it just allows me to be like, yeah, it's cool that I'm here, but I'm not going to hang out here. I can go do other stuff too and do better things. Yeah, yeah. What's and so it? go do them. There was some bus of spiritual seekers who used to drive around the country and they drove a bus. And I want to say that on the front of the bus, like destination, like usually a bus has a destination on it. Their destination just said further. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) In line with what you were saying. Totally, totally the same idea. So do I get to ask you, what are you rebelling against? You absolutely can. That's great. I've, you're the first person to do that. I knew someone would at some point. You were ready. And so I've been ready. But and the reality is for me, I would say it's very similar. I am I am absolutely rebelling against limitations and really against, let's see, would be the word is, I might have to back into it because for me, it's, and what really has driven so much of my you know, winding career path to where I am now is the awareness, like you, I, I think I'm able to see people's light, as you would put it, their strengths, their unique gifts. And I have seen so many people who have suffered for either having those gifts repressed, snuffed out for their own self-denial of it. And I think about how much is lost to the world because of that. Wow. And that 
you talk about things that hurt your heart. And yeah. sure, I can relate to part of it because I've done plenty of that to myself in various forms. And I think probably most of us do if we don't have the right support around us along the way. I was fortunate to get to a space where I, again, got my own help and support and did my own work there to be able to go, okay, wait a second, that's not that's not going to work. And so that's really that's really the thing. So my people are the ones who haven't learned yet how to stand up to take up the space that they get to take as, as a being in the world to manage that so they can be who they, they are. So that's the deal. And it's exciting that you're finding ways to do more of that. Absolutely. I was just talking about this yesterday. I was um, shooting a little video to post the question of like, why are you doing a podcast anyway? And that's part of the thing I was talking about is this is another way that I can um, be of service really in two ways. One, being able to give examples of people who have wrestled with some of these same challenges and found ways to overcome them. But then also for people like you, who you do great work, you're doing important things. And so it's a great chance for me to be able to be like, hey, everyone, check this guy out. He does some cool stuff. Maybe he might be able to help you. And so that's really cool. And you, you know the power of why and mission in energizing and driving your work, certainly. And that's that's really, I think it's probably, it's like, why did it take you so long to do a podcast? You've talked about it for years because I didn't have the why in place until recently. Yeah. And you had your own fear, no doubt, right? Gosh. Of course. Yeah. Had? What do you mean had? <laughs> Check in with me next Wednesday after all the episodes go live and I'm sitting there going, no what if doubt. no one listens? What if everyone thinks it's stupid, oh right? Because of course, we all have those voices. The difference now is that I'm like, yeah, I know those voices are going to show up yep. and I can either listen to them yep. and know that they're trying to keep me safe and decide to play small, or I can say, life is too damn short for that to be the case. I'm going to put this stuff out there. I don't know who it's going to connect with. I don't know what it's going to do, but I'm going to get some feedback from it and I'm going to use that to do it better. Yeah, yeah. That reminds me in the the movie, A Beautiful Mind, the insight that the guy had, because they said, oh, because he there was always, I think, a little girl and a, a younger man that were always telling him to do crazy stuff. And that got him in a lot of trouble. Of course, there were voices in his head. And somebody said, oh, so you don't, you've changed your behavior, so you don't hear the voices anymore. And he said- no, the voices are still there. I just recognize that they're not real. Yes. And his clue was that he, everybody else was aging, but they always stayed the same age. But I thought that was so profound. It's no, the voices are still there. I like to tell my clients, it's like that thing that 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 fear or whatever, it, it used to show up at the front door and take a seat and just make itself at home. Now that you understand how it works, it's still going to show up at the front door, but it's you let it in and then you just escorted out the back door nice. and you're done, but it still shows up. And I thought his example of it was so profound. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't, wow, that's great. I'm, I'm going to have to go rewatch that movie because it's been years, but you're absolutely right. And yeah, you know this, I know this. I think anyone who works in the world of people's thoughts and their heads, we know that these, everyone wants the voices to not show up, but, and everyone's like, how do I get these to go away? You don't what? It's like, you can change your relationship with them. They're still there. I just don't, I just don't give them the power that they used to have because I know they're not going to take me anywhere good. They're just going to go park in the garage and not go anywhere. And it's going to be a pretty boring, quiet life. And like you said at the very beginning, when you were talking about me, they served some purpose at some point. Otherwise we would have never had them, but they served some purpose and maybe even occasionally on a very small scale, when we use them consciously, they can be helpful. But like when they're out of control uh, and we're not aware of them and we're not 
recognizing them, yeah, not so helpful. Actually, I found that in my work with very successful people, like the people that you see written about in business journals and things like that, that you would think, oh, they got it together. And I'm sure these are some of your clients too. Like when they talk to you about what's really going on, people would be shocked about the the noise in their head and the doubt and and so on. And so it's the same. And I found that actually they say that there are, I, I, I call the work that I do is around building resilience. And I like to say there are gateway drugs. <laughs> and then there are gateway leadership qualities. And resilience, I think, is a gateway leadership quality. Because without resilience, you can try to build all sorts of stuff on top of it. But every time, but you'll get knocked down and you won't be able to, like, you'll stay in a powerless state. So resilience is being able to be at your best, even when things around you aren't at their best or at their worst. So I just find that it's like a gateway quality is th- this, the work that you're doing. I don't know if you call it resilience. I call it resilience. But it's so important because without that, I don't care how many degrees that you have and how great a strategic thinker you are. At some point, things are going to get so intense and your your best is going to be gone and you're going to do it to yourself. I want to dig into this resilience thing a little bit if we can. It, tell me a little bit about how you work with your clients around that topic and what are the things that you teach or show them to help them increase and enhance their resilience. It's a hugely important thing to have. So tell me how you you build this up for them. In a few ways. One is I just, I I share with them a map of what's going to happen every time that you get, we get triggered and I'll show you, and I'll even show you, I'll break it down in slow motion. Like the trigger is usually, if it takes you down, it's some event occurred. I call it the broken glass moment or something happened. And maybe it was internal. You had a thought, or maybe you got information from the outside, or maybe you heard somebody made a comment to you, but something happened and you very quickly filter that. And if your filter says danger, you usually feel an emotion. And in that moment, if the emotion is uncomfortable, you do everything you can to get away from it. And that's when you're in trouble. It's a fear-based emotion. And if you don't understand it, you're going to do everything you can to get away from it. And you're going to do exactly what you said at the beginning of this conversation, which is you're going to go back to those skills that you learned as a young child when you weren't as mature and you weren't didn't have the intellectual capability. And you're going to use some version of that. And then once that happens, I say that's when you lose the five C's, clarity, confidence, creativity, connection, and calm all go away. You lose your power. You lose your ability to have impact. They all go negative. And, but so many times we think actually we're justifying that. We're feeling righteous about that feeling or whatever. And we don't realize actually you've just, you've taken your own legs out from under you right now. And so I I show them how it happens, help them recognize it in themselves because we all have a different flavor of it. And then it's a matter of recognizing what I was calling those ahas or the tells. Like when I'm in, when I'm on my powerless trip, I start to hear myself plotting revenge in my head. It's not like I'm going to blow up your house, but it's, it's, I'm going to, oh, wait till I tell you this. And when I start to recognize that, I realize, oh my God, I'm doing that thing. It's moved in and it sat down in the living room. But once I, now I realize it's sat down in the, when I hear that voice, I'm like, oh, I've gone from unconscious to conscious. And now I've built a whole bunch of moves that I can practice, that I practiced in advance that I built muscle memory for. And this is what I do with my clients. It's okay, let's know your patterns and let's then feed you ahead of time with these things that we're going to train you on. We practice being resilient when the stress is low and it's easy to generate so that when you need it and the stress is high, you have muscle memory access to it. Because if you try and access it then for the first time, it's like trying to do a new move in the championship game. You'd be crazy. You'll probably blow it. So you practice when nobody's around. And so we actually, a lot of the the work that I do, there's a program I lead called Mind to Win. 
it helps people build that resilience and those five C's and everything. So we, a lot of it is practice because it's it, it, when you start to understand what it is, it's not rocket science. And so uh, they walk away all the time with training to do. And it's not like super intense. It's usually, I'd say five minutes a day, daily drip versus a big gulp. We'll do five minutes a day so that you can really get the muscle memory of it. And it's a five-week program. And people will tell you at the end of five weeks, I can't believe how far I've come. I see my own signature version of blowing it, losing it. I know what that looks like so I can catch myself on it. I, I even know probably why it's happening so I can maybe prevent it um, from happening, become less triggerable, if you will. And then I've trained so that in those moments when it does happen, because it will happen, somebody's going to show up at the front door, that I'm ready to walk it out the back door right away and get back to full power. Nice. That's the the way we do it. And honestly, I've read hundreds of books, studied with so many teachers, meditated for years, and I just couldn't... I, everything I'm teaching them, I had to figure out for myself to pull myself out of this. That's often the case. So everybody, David has just given us a, a five-minute course in how to build and up your resilience. That is awesome. Obviously, the work is the work, but that's like a great just little mini yet master course in how to do that. That's going to be really, I think, helpful for a lot of the folks listening to this episode. Thanks. And one of the things I would just say is we all have to just get okay with it. Like We can't escape having ugly emotions or uncomfortable emotions that's not evidence that you're there's something wrong with you that's evidence that you're human and so if you misread the evidence you retreat i think that's what you and i are both really trying to do totally is hey folks this is nothing wrong here this is like you a part of our brain is designed to give us feelings right (laughs) so you can't not do that right no and you shouldn't we just need to learn how to respond better to it. That's you're right. And you're right. Very similar stuff here. So will you share with me one thing, Steve, you shared a quote one time that Tim Robbins gave in a a movie. And it's one of my favorite quotes about, is it about emotions? It's so it's about feelings. And so here's, yeah, here's the deal. It's from the movie. Thanks for sharing. And it is, it's Timothy Robbins. It's his character who says it to Mark Ruffalo's character. And it would be better if I could remember their actual names in the movie, but that's fine. So he's, and he's playing the role of Mark Ruffalo's sponsor. And, and he says to him, so feelings are like kids in the car. You can't let them drive, but you can't stuff them in the trunk either. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) It's great. It's bam. When I heard it, I'm like, oh my God, that's perfect. And I use it with clients all the time because it's such a powerful visual. It is way more effective than me giving you some mini lecture about like neuroscience in the brain, which is going to make everyone fall asleep because everyone gets like the idea of a kid grabbing the steering wheel because what's going to happen? It's going to swerve off the road and crash. So it's a beautiful visual. Yeah. Hey, by the way, another beautiful visual, people can Google it. Dr. Daniel Siegel, just Google Dr. Daniel Siegel, hand model of the brain. And in like two minutes, he gives us in a simple way because it's meant for kids so that we can all understand it if somebody wants to understand that. I, I, w- I will absolutely put a link to that in the show notes. And you're right, um, Siegel's work is great. He has done a lot to bring a lot of our knowledge of the brain to the, those of us who aren't neuroscientists in a way that is a lot more accessible for sure. Yeah, I have a lot of respect for him. If you have a few more minutes, I've got one more thing that I like to do if you're not in a rush to get out of here. No, let's go for it. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about a current obstacle or challenge that you're wrestling with in your business. Okay, sure. I'm just trying to pick one. <laughs> yeah, so I have a love-hate relationship with being known. I'm successful. I've been in this business for 25 years. All of my business comes through either word of mouth or former clients that come back for more. 
So I, I assume that I'm doing it well, and yet I fight putting myself out there more, in part because I think what I told you, where I grew up, you do not boast and brag and all those things. And so I associate being better known with boasting and bragging. Yet, if I want to serve at a higher level, I'd like to be able to reach more people and have them know that I can help them. I keep shooting myself in the foot. So can you fix me, Steve, please? <laughs> we'll see what I can do with this. What I do hear is you're carrying around the story that it is not okay to make yourself visible yeah, because it's braggy or showing off or whatever word you might have out of the, that idea of, I can't stand up and be like, hey, look at me. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I would even go even further and say, and I can point to some people who did brag without the cred, without the chops, and got people to buy a bunch of stuff from them, and then they were disappointed. So I'm overcorrecting, I think. I don't want to be that person. And so I think I am trying to not do something that I would never do, but that's actually it's crazy. It's not crazy. It is the perfectly logical thing to do based on the story that's driving you. Mm. We're always acting logically. We're just acting logically based on a certain programming set that is sometimes not the right programming set. Do you have the cred or not? I have the cred. I'm really confident in my work. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad you're able to just see that and own that. What is another story that you can tell yourself that you can believe about making yourself more visible instead of this, don't be a show off. You might need to help me here, but I will, I'll take a stab at it. Another story could be that don't keep your light under a bushel or without people knowing who I am, I can be the most amazing at my work in the world. And I'm of no value because nobody knows, nobody can find me. And so I guess to turn that around in a positive way, it's to say, if I really do want to cultivate the genius in people that people have to be able to find me. And I want to make it easy for them so that, because people don't give us a lot of time to decide, are we in or not? Do I want to learn more about this person or, or connect with this person? And to live on my own why, my own mission of people come, people go. And when they leave their light, they know I need to let them see the, the light that's in me. Yes. I completely agree with that. And that's pretty much exactly what was coming up in, in my head. I think that a lot of us get focused on this idea, again, of trying not to be a show-off or mm -hmm. too braggy or any of those things. There's also the piece of when you put yourself up above the crowd, you make yourself potentially a target. Ah, uh, yeah. But, but here's the, the way I always think of it is, how are your people going to find you if you're hiding? They won't, yeah. Right? And if you aren't willing to speak up and say, hey, here I am. Hi, I'm David. Here's what I'm, what I'm about. How are they going to find you, man? Thank you. Yeah, I think the other story I tell myself is I'm not a therapist. I'm not a whatever. But what I know is that people move when they when I work with them. They have extraordinary results. And so I've come back to, I can show the results. But then right. the voice in my head is somebody who has a PhD and such and such might say, you said that inappropriately or whatever. That might be true, but the, my client got the result that they wanted ethically. <laughs> so if we keep score on who uses the most clinically detailed and appropriate language, yeah, you're never going to be like the PhD. Who cares? Because you know how much correlation that has to do with impact and changing people? Yeah, good point. Zero. Yeah. 
We know, we know this, right? Story is a more powerful teacher than data. And I do tell a lot of stories. It's metaphors and stories in my work is yes. I find really effective for people to connect because they listen to it for the, not about me or about this topic, but for themselves. Yeah. But that, and that's the thing. You have the ability to connect with certain people and to take these ideas that you've studied clearly, deeply for years that you understand in a good and thorough way, and you're now able to take them and convey them in a way that not only allows people to understand them, but will inspire them or move them, as you would say, to be able to do something. And I think it also helps me to remember that not everyone is going to be my client or yours. That's why there are so many people who do and work in the field that we do because some of them will be drawn to one person and not another. That used to haunt me all the time. Now it haunts me when I'm stretching into something new. I'm doing some stretching right now. I'm building a new school. I'm doing some things. I'm stepping into some new areas. And so the chatter has shown up again. And I can use all of my techniques on it, which work. And yet it's great to have, sometimes it's just great to have somebody like you to talk to about it because it's hard to get out of our own head sometimes. I think we all sometimes need need a little bit of, of help or encouragement owning our light or staying connected to it. And we definitely all need to work on making sure we don't get in our own way of it, recognizing that as long as you're not using it in some way that is snuffing out other people's, which of course you're not doing, I, I fail to see what's wrong with making there be greater awareness in the world of this resource that you are, that's out there who can serve people and who can help people who have something to contribute. They just need to be able to get out of their own way and stop fighting for their limitations. Yeah. Thanks. Beautiful, beautiful summary, man. I'm going to go back and listen to this just so I can catch all the bombs that you were dropping there, man. Awesome. So David, tell me where people can learn more about you or get in touch with you. Where's the best place to connect with you online? Best place is just to connect on my website. Yeah. They can find me at David Martin Co., all one word, davidmartinco.com. They can learn more about me there and there's a way to contact me there. In fact, we're just updating the website. It'll be fresh in a couple of months. They can read my blog. They can sign up for my blog. They can read more about my book there and find out about the different programs that I offer. So yeah, to be delighted to have someone Take a visit. I'm going to put in a plug for David's blog. You definitely will see what he's talking about with stories and metaphors. You'll see that in his blogs. They're interesting. They're not dry. They have good ideas that are articulated in ways that make them very accessible. He, one, doesn't flood your inbox. And two, whenever he sh his name shows up in my inbox, I know there's going to be something interesting and useful there that I can steal and use with my clients. <laughs> All right. Limitation or uh, theft <laughs> is the greatest form of flattery. Anyway, no, thanks. I, I learned that storytelling is two things. One is we all listen to stories autobiographically. So all those stories, even though they're about somebody else, that hopefully the person who's reading it will see something about themselves in it. And the secret is that I write every blog post because I need to hear what I'm saying. I think that's true for a lot of folks. <laughs> I appreciate that you are willing to admit it and, and be upfront about it because I think we, we need more vulnerability in the world. David, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I am always happy to have the chance to talk to you, um, to get into this stuff because it's you, you have, I think, really great ideas and I love how you put them out there in such a powerful and accessible way. And so I think it's something that's just really super valuable. Your clients are very fortunate to have you and so am I. So again, thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah. And thanks for doing this, Steve. You've made it really fun. And I can tell that 
this is a great podcast series that you're doing and you are doing a great service in the world. So thanks for doing this. Thank you, David. That's it for this episode of the Sensitive Rebel Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. You'll find show notes, other episodes, and a whole lot more at sensitiverebel.com. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Until then, keep moving forward.